Welcome, friends, to the Agora Network Ministries program, Hope for the Agora, a conversation about mental health and the church. Listen in as our hosts, the founders and directors of Agora Network Ministries, Alan and Bonnie Gallant, share practical, educational, and insightful information about the mental health conversation and stigma inside the walls of the church. Through interviews, stories, and Christ-centered devotionals, along with dialogues with leading Christian mental health professionals and network ministries, our hope is that you, the listener, will learn and experience that hope and healing can be found in a holistic approach for body, soul, and spirit. Our prayer is that you become more aware about the importance of your mental health and be willing to make the changes you need to become a healthier you, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Again, welcome to this program. Now, the founders and directors of Agora Network Ministries, Alan and Bonnie. Welcome, everyone, to Pastor to Pastor. It's part of the Hope for the Agora weekly broadcast. You can also find us on our podcast online, Hope for the Agora. Just go to our website, agoranetworkministries.com. Today on the program, we're focusing on narcissism in leadership and the church. My guest today has spent more than 15 years doing assessments of Christian leaders and churches and has seen firsthand the effects of narcissism on the church. My guest today is Chuck DeGroat who recently released a new book called When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. Chuck DeGroat is Professor of Pastoral Care and Christian Spirituality at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan, and Senior Fellow at Newbegin House of Studies in San Francisco. He is an author of numerous books. He's a speaker, consultant, and a registered therapist. Thank you, Chuck, for being here today. Uh, appreciate you taking the time. So welcome. Thank you, Alan. This is a really important topic. I read your book, and I couldn't put it down. I saw my some of my own personal struggles over the years in there as well. Um, I, of course. You know, you don't want to pigeonhole people, but you go right away to certain people you've worked in. I've experienced trauma in a church that had some strong narcissistic tendencies as well. I've been under leadership that I was really concerned about, been in jobs with people that I would say were narcissistic. But, I mean, that's a word that's getting thrown around a lot. And I think today uh, I would appreciate, I think all of us would appreciate if you help us unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So I, I really didn't want to write it. I tried to avoid writing it. Uh, I had written a book right before this or maybe five years ago called Wholeheartedness. And, and that, that topic, uh, that area is much closer, closer to my own heart, my own passion. This was, this was, uh, more of a duty than than a joy, and it really emerged out of some conversations I had uh, three or four years ago with pastors, uh, pastors who are part of a larger church network, and who are seeing within this church planning network more and more 
occasions for abuse, narcissistic abuse, gaslighting, spiritual abuse, things like that, and could not find a good resource. I, I mean, they were kind of patching together resources on narcissism, but uh, wanted a more comprehensive resource for the church. And uh, a couple of them approached me and said, would you write something like that? And my immediate response was, that's the last thing I want to write. Uh, I, it's not a particularly pleasant topic to talk about or to engage in or to do counseling for. Uh, and so, uh, but they twisted my arm and uh, <laughs> the, the result was, was this book. Wow. Um, but I want to say thank you for listening to that and for being obedient because it has been very helpful. And I think it will be helpful for a lot of people, a lot of churches, a lot of leaders. So we're, we're kind of really promoting it as a must-read for pastors because I've been at this for mm, 35 years and just, wow, this is the first time I've seen anything like this that I think we could have used years and years ago. Perhaps uh, you could help us understand narcissism um, because it gets thrown around all over the place because probably most people don't really have as an expansive understanding of it as you do. You've been at it for a long time. Yeah, so I think when when people, well, when I, when I talk about the definition of narcissism and get down to what narcissism means, I mean, you, you kind of have to go to uh, the Bible of psychology. It's called the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of, of Disorders. Uh, and that's where you get your, your clinical definition of narcissism that includes things like grandiosity, entitlement, lack of empathy, uh, impairments in relationships and vocational life and things like that. And generally for psychologists, they look for a cluster of these, these uh, characteristics and, and make diagnoses based on that. Uh, and, and that's, that's fine. Uh, I do think that in, in writing this, I wanted to be a little bit more expansive because I think uh, narcissism shows up in ways that are obvious and not so obvious. And uh, sometimes a little bit more nuanced than, than what the clinical definition offers. And so in the book, I go into nine particular faces of narcissism that I've, I've seen uh, over the years, connect that to some of my work with the, um, a tool called the Enneagram. Uh, but then, then there's a larger conversation about narcissistic attributes in pastors sure. and, and how it shows up in particular in pastors and ministry leaders, which can be you know, particularly insidious, but, but also kind of subversive and cloaked. And mm -hmm. uh, so, so that, that, that becomes the larger conversation of the book. Right. Um, which I really appreciated. And I was thinking, you know, you, we talk about narcissism. A lot of people look at narcissism as this grandiose thing, right? Those, that seems to be, um, and sometimes we actually misunderstand someone who's very confident as, oh, they must be narcissistic. Uh, but that isn't necessarily the case either. But you talk about grandiose and vulnerable narcissism. Well, Maybe you can unpack that for unpack that a little bit. Yeah, so these are sort of opposite sides of the same coin. And um, vulnerable narcissism is, is a unique form of narcissism in that it doesn't show up as grandiose as grandiose narcissism. So that might be obvious by, um, by the, the labels, but... Um, <laughs> 
imagine imagine someone who may not be on stage, may not be as grandiose, but draws attention to himself in other kinds of ways. Maybe self-pitying, self-loathing, maybe passive aggressive. Um, and, and you're in a relationship with this person and it always feels like the energy is towards him or towards mm -hmm. her. That's, that's generally what we mean by more vulnerable narcissism. Like this is not someone that you might see on stage or in public or uh, leading an organization, but you feel the stickiness around them. Uh, you feel like all the energy is, is kind of moving in their direction mm -hmm. and they have this sort of way of, of drawing you in, even manipulatively drawing you in. Uh, some people, uh, some people call this a more co covert narcissism. Right. That's language that's used out there. Um, and, and what we, uh, where we tend to see this kind of narcissism, uh, is in smaller church contexts, rural church contexts, uh, churches that are, uh, Churches that are tend to maybe uh, uh, well, I'm thinking of a particular kind of church where I did some work uh, around this, where where the pastor was not didn't need to be on some big stage, wasn't grandiose, wasn't a big name, but very much had this sense that I am the most faithful pastor. This is the true church. We're the only church that understands the gospel. Every other church in town is unfaithful, um, but presented this in a kind of a, a, a narrative of victimization, like we're always the underdog, no one comes here, even though we have the truth. Uh, and, and so people weren't sure whether to call this narcissism, uh, because it doesn't look like your megachurch version of narcissism, right? But it was this more vulnerable, covert narcissism. Yeah, that reminds me of a conversation I had with another therapist friend of mine. He called it the negative narcissism. I'm like, isn't all of it negative? But, you know, <laughs> he said the negative narcissism uh, is, don't you see me? Don't you see That's me? It. So, yep. no, thanks for um, unpacking that for us a little bit. And you were talking about the Enneagram. And um, it's been my discovery. There's a lot of uh, colleagues out there who don't know what that is. Uh, so maybe you could brief us on that. Yeah. I mean, people can look online and I'm going to put notes in in this as well when it goes up to podcast. Yeah, it's uh, what's interesting about this this tool called the Enneagram is that within the last probably five or six years, it has gained some traction in evangelical circles. And so it's being talked about more and more nowadays. And it's being it's being used like the Myers-Briggs or the DISC or any other personality test. But the reality is, is that the Enneagram isn't a personality test. It's, it's really a more ancient way of talking about uh, pathology or sin, or uh, think about the deadly sins going back to the early church, uh, deadly vices, passions. It's a way of talking about how we get our needs met, um, ultimately in self-sabotaging kinds of ways, ways that hurt us and ways that hurt others. And, and the Enneagram, uh, uh, shows nine particular pathways for getting your needs met in a way that might be self-sabotaging or hurtful to yourself or to others. And what I saw when I was, as I've been using the Enneagram and I became familiar with the Enneagram back in the late 1990s, what I saw in using that tool alongside more clinical tools was quite a bit of overlap. Um, and so there, there are personality, um, personalities within the Enneagram or types within the Enneagram that might be seen as more classically narcissistic. Uh, an Enneagram type three is often called an achiever. An Enneagram type eight uh, can come across as powerful or bullying. 
Um, and Enneagram type seven uh, was sometimes called the classic archetype of, of narcissism um, by some, uh, because this is a kind of pleasure seeking kind of person. The reality is, is that some of the other types in the Enneagram, although maybe a little bit less obvious, um, reveal, reveal uh, narcissistic tendencies. I'm, I'm a type four. Type fours love to be special, love to be unique. We may not be as grandiose as others, but we're secretly saying, oh, please, please, Alan, tell me how unique I am. <laughs> you're very Enneagram. unique, sir. Yes, yeah, right. yes Chuck, right. you're good. <laughs> so we've got ways of, you know, my way of drawing people in might not be by getting up on stage. I don't particularly enjoy uh, the big audience or the big stage. My, my way of doing it might... Uh, be by kind of defining myself in a way that you see me in a way that you might not see anyone else. Mm-hmm. And I think what the Enneagram does, and I, I love how it's connected to the ancient Christian tradition and the deadly sins, is it it actually invites us to look at core relational patterns as sin patterns in our lives, which is language that I think Christians feel more comfortable with. Right, right. No, that's great. Um, I I've taken it a few times, Two is always part of it. It's not the highest one, but I waver between nine and seven. So um, when I was reading your book, I was looking at those. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I could see where I, I have struggled with those things. Not to a huge degree. And I thank God for like good mentors who would say, hey, <laughs> you know, but uh, and people sometimes think in terms of yes. um, I've discovered in, when it comes to narcissism, they think, oh, if you're an introvert. You can't be narcissistic. Mm-hmm, that's right. Which just isn't true. Not true at all. Not true at all. So that is super helpful. But where, uh, when we talk about narcissism, where does that come from? How does a person become so narcissistic to end up, for instance, with narcissistic personality disorder? Because um, we all struggle at times with narcissism at some level, uh, sometimes when... So when does it become harmful? Or maybe I shouldn't even ask, when does it become harmful? It's... It, it probably is a harmful at every level to a degree. Well, maybe there are two parts to this. Uh, one, the where does it come from? Um, people wonder about, is this a nature or nurture thing? Are we born with it? Uh, does something happen in our childhood that causes it? And it's a kind of a mysterious combination of both, but with a strong emphasis on your, your childhood upbringing and uh, the, the, the impact of your your parents and caregivers and others in your life in your early years. And and what I've found over the years, and I've counseled quite a few narcissistic men and some women along the way, is that there are inevitably stories early in their life of being bullied or marginalized or abused. And then unconsciously, they develop patterns of of defending themselves. Um, They become the bully, uh, ironically in order to protect themselves from ever experiencing that again. I remember working with a pastor about three or four years ago who allowed me in. And this this doesn't happen all the time because they're so defended. Um, but he allowed me in enough to, to tell me a story of some pretty profound abuse. And I remember he said, I didn't know it at the time, but I took a vow that day to never, ever let this happen to me again. The crazy thing is, is he became the abuser. Um, he became the bully. He became the manipulator. And so there's a kind of a relational pattern that begins early in life. Now, th- in some people, this is more problematic than in others. There are some who become 
uh, malignant narcissist, uh, maybe the most cruel form of narcissism, someone who utterly lacks empathy, um, who, who simply lives to victimize others uh, and hurt others. There, there are more charismatic and wooing narcissists who uh, don't, don't come across as quite as cruel or malignant as, as other kinds of narcissists, but they're chameleons. Um, who who have personas that you know they they uh, take on uh, they put on and take off like masks you know uh, on any given day and so uh, oftentimes when when I talk about narcissism I talk about it existing on a spectrum um, I in fact I use a psychological assessment tool that places people on a spectrum from from uh, narcissistic style to narcissistic type to narcissistic personality disorder which means that you or I might have elevations on the narcissistic spectrum, but we might not be diagnosed with right. narcissistic personality mm-hmm. disorder. Okay. Wow. That's, that's very helpful. Uh, how, you know, you've seen it. Um, what have you seen as uh, fallout? What are, what are some of the fallout from um, narcissistic pastors on people in the congregation? Yeah, one of the things I really wanted to emphasize in the book was uh, the impact of narcissistic leadership, um, narcissistic abuse. And so in the book, I talk about emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, gaslighting. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. an impact uh, on on people who are within the orbit of of a narcissistic leader. Uh, In fact, one of the main reasons often when people ask me about the book, I say one of the main reasons I wrote it was to to tell people that they're not crazy because uh, there's often this sense when you're around a narcissistic pastoral leader, and this is a little different. This is a really important distinction to make. Um, Distinguish this from a a Hollywood star, a prominent lawyer, a politician. Now we're talking about narcissistic pastors. There's a sense for those in the orbit of a narcissistic pastor that they're around someone who uh, is holy or special, or he's, mm-hmm. he's got a master of divinity, or he's ordained, um, he's reverend. And so you second guess yourself more, even when abuse is happening, manipulation is happening, bully is hap- bullying is happening, coercion is happening, any of those different kinds of things, you second guess yourself more uh, when you're in the orbit of a, of a uh, pastoral narcissistic leader. Um, and so um, people will feel uh, small, insecure, anxious, condescended to. Um, they'll feel marginalized. They'll uh, they'll feel crazy in the presence of a narcissistic leader. Uh, but more often than not, they'll say, "Well, that's probably my problem because look, it's him. He's got the MDiv. He's got this ministry of two thousand people that bears fruit. Everyone loves him. He's got fifteen thousand followers on Twitter. It can't be him. It must be me." Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I can remember in a church I served as a youth pastor, there was a little bit of that happening, some of that gaslighting. It wasn't until years later that I realized the trauma that it inflicted on me and how it affected my ministry after that. And again, thankful to mentors who said, hey, do you not see this? And getting some my own counseling to get some things together it was like so eye-opening and helpful. So when I read this book too, I was like, wow, I see so many situations and I've talked to so many people have come through uh, situations like that who, uh, you know, share stories uh, 
of how they couldn't stand administrators not being able to work with pastors. Um, the board of elders or deacons, you know, the consistory, as we called it, were would be on edge. You know, people were starting to find excuses not to have to attend meetings. And it just seemed like, you know, the harm that was being done. I'm so thankful that you are able to work within that and, you know, help uh, paint us, uh, paint your readers and the people you talk to a, a clearer picture of what that can look like um, for them and to be aware of. So now this show is talking to pastors. What, what would you say to a pastor that's, that, that needs to confront some of this? And maybe that's not the best way to put it, but how do we get to this? How do we uncover this in our churches? That's a good question. And that's the $10,000 question or, or the million-dollar question. Uh, <laughs> this is confronting us, I think, now. Uh, I, I, I wish we had been more intentional about it, but I think it's, it's now confronting us. Uh, I think over the last five years, uh, as I've sort of uh, kept my eye on on let's just say the North American church, and let's just face it, probably more the white church, um, given my my location, there's something going on that I'm I'm calling a reckoning. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of like it's, uh, I, I wish it was us choosing to get healthier, but I, right. but I think that what's happening right now is there is a kind of accumulation of pain that is causing the church to face some things. You've seen it in the Catholic church, um, sexual abuse scandal, uh, you're seeing it in the evangelical church with this um, this hashtag Church Two movement. You remember the Me Too movement? There's a corresponding Church Two movement where where we're seeing even in large churches in very visible ways. Think about Willow Creek and Bill Hybels in Chicago. We're seeing in pretty visible ways a kind of reckoning with abuse and misconduct in the church, narcissistic leadership, and so. I think we're, and that's probably, you know, in part why I wrote the book is to sort of make sense of, of what people were seeing, but maybe didn't have words for, uh, let's call it what it is, narcissism, narcissism. Uh, let's label these things as what they are, spiritual abuse, emotional abuse, gaslighting, things like that. So I, I would say, kind of to get to the heart of your question, now that we're understanding a little bit more of what's going on, maybe now that we understand the psychological dynamics a little bit more, my hope is that people will have the tools, not just my book, there's some other really good books that have come out, uh, Diane Langberg this month, Wade Mullen, uh, Scott McKnight, where there are a number of us collectively talking about this phenomenon uh, within, within the church. And I think that that's a sign that we're waking up to uh, uh, misconduct, abuse, narcissism in ways that we weren't awakened to it even five years ago. Wow. And I'm glad I'm, you mentioned Scott McKnight. And um, yeah, I've been reading some of his stuff too that has just been great in this area. So I'm glad. Uh, I, I'm assuming there's some collaboration going on there, or at least cross conversation about these things between you and your colleagues uh, regarding this. There was something that I wanted to touch on just for sake of time, and then I want to be able to close uh, this segment with um, a, a final question. But before that, I've been a church planter, two churches, and uh, you mentioned something particular about church planters and narcissism. 
Why, why did you mention that? Is there something unique there that you found? In a way, I stumbled into that uh, years ago when I began assessing pastors, uh, when I was invited to be a part of my first, uh, first ever church planning assessment process back in the early 2000s. Um, and I, I didn't have the categories I have now. Um, I, I just sort of sensed that there was something going on in the room. One of the things I noticed was that things that I, I was flagging as potential problems, uh, perhaps maybe some things that I was seeing as they were interacting with one another. Some of my other assessors who were not trained counselors or psychologists, well, they were labeling them as gifts. I was saying, well, it comes across as a bit bullying. And they translate that as, well, he's just confident. You know, I'd say he, he comes across to me as a chameleon. And they'd say, oh, he's just adaptable. That's going to work for him as a church planter. And so I, very early on in the early 2000s, uh, as I started doing more and more church planting assessment, but I had some suspicion that we were perhaps letting planters through. And, and, and now, by the way, I've, I know some of the planters we let through. I know, I know that they've, they've, uh, they've fallen in their ministries. I know in some cases that uh, assessors came back to me. I know just in the last year, uh, last six months since the book was published, uh, folks from my former denomination have come to me and said, hey, remember 15 years ago when you said that he might be a problem? Well, let me tell you a story. All right. So as we close this segment, um, what's the road to healing look like for pastors, leaders who are narcissistic? Uh, What have you found is needed for pastors to come to terms with those struggles? So if we go back to what we were talking about, about the narcissistic spectrum, there are pastors who are uh, maybe not disordered in their relating, not narcissistic personality disorder. They may have narcissistic tendencies. And for those folks, the path to healing is, uh, is more possible, you might say. I mean, if they're willing to be curious and humble and look at the, the ways that they relate, uh, look at some things in their lives, look at how people experience them, do the work of maybe maybe kind of probing around in their family of origin story, there's a possibility of, of some significant healing there. Uh, with narcissistic personality disorder, most of us who do this kind of work say that uh, there's much more resistance. I mean, someone who's diagnosable NPD, you're not going to find a willingness to do the work of excavating their story. They might give you the illusion that they are, they're willing to do that, particularly if it means keeping their job, but very rarely do you see a, a real and sincere effort to engage that deep work. And so when it comes to NPD, a lot of what we do, I do in my work, is we try to mitigate the damage. Um, oftentimes, they need to be removed from their ministries. Uh, and uh, with that, there's significant healing that has to happen uh, within the debris field that they've caused, people that they've hurt or abused, congregations uh, that have experienced their toxic leadership. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for joining us today on Pastor to Pastor Chuck, and we pray God's continued blessings on your work. Thanks, Alan. I want to thank you for joining us on our pastor to pastor this week. Um, Don't have too much time, so I just want to encourage you, if you are on this journey and you're struggling as a pastor, as a leader, 
and need to talk to somebody, please reach out to a therapist, a spiritual director, both preferably. But I want to leave you with this verse from Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. It says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave nor forsake you. Remember that on this journey. Uh, So if you are struggling, don't forget, you have an advocate on your side. Thank you for joining us. May God bless you. As we conclude our program, we want to thank you for listening to today's broadcast. For more information about Agora, we invite you to journey through our website, www.agoranetworkministries.com. Also, please subscribe while there. Or email us at info at agoranetworkministries.com. Until next time, may you know and experience the hope and healing that comes from the greatest healer. Jesus Christ.